You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Man, God is good. Good morning, church. I'm excited to be with you guys. I was out of the pulpit for three weeks. So I'm going to teach you a lesson about what happens when you let me do that. I'm ready to go today. You guys ready to go? Let's do this. We're going to jump back into Mark today. We've been out of Mark for a little more than a month. We, we stopped to take some time to focus on Advent, and then we spent January uh, hiding from the weather and then talking about vision. Uh, and today we're back in Mark, so you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles at the end of each row. We would love for you to grab one of those. If you don't have a good Bible, please just snag one of those or talk to one of our pastors and we'll, we'll give you one that's a little nicer. Um, but we just, we just really think it's important to have access to God's Word. So if you have need of one, uh, maybe give a dirty look to someone on the end of the row and they'll pass you one. Uh, we're in Mark 13, and if you're uh, perceptive, you might notice we're skipping a passage, which we don't normally do. Uh, but we were off a week, and uh, in order to stay in sync with uh, our other churches, we're going to skip the end of Mark 12, and we'll come back and, and jump in that this summer when we're done with the book. So I know some of you guys were just chomping at the bit to hear about Jesus' opinion about widows, but uh, you have to wait. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. We're in Mark 13. Um, I'm going to read the text for us in just a second, but before I do, uh, we're going to be in Mark 13 for the next three weeks, going bit by bit, and this is one of the weirdest chunks of Mark. Uh, We're going to get into some of Jesus's apocalyptic teaching, uh, which is not a super popular topic of of sermon, and and so I'm stoked that I get uh, to walk through that with you guys. Thanks a lot, other guys. But anyway, um, we're in Mark 13. Let me start in the first verse. In the first verse of 13th chapter, the gospel according to Mark tells us this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the word of the Lord. What a fun text. Here's what I'd like to do, because this is, this is a a whammy of a text, and it's part of this larger chunk of uh, Mark 13. I don't know how many of you guys have subheadings in your Bible, but the next one is the abomination of desolation. (laughs) Sounds like a heavy metal band. Uh, This is is a a, a trippy chapter, and I'm I'm stoked for us to get into it, because I I really believe God has something good and sweet and encouraging and challenging for us in this. But this is a, a little bit of a harder genre, a little bit of a harder kind of text to pick through. And so I want to I invite you guys to just kind of be in this with me. We're going to pick apart some of kind of the nuances of what Jesus is saying and point out a couple contextual and historical pieces. And that's going to lead us, I think, eventually uh, to Hebrews, and we'll end out our time uh, in Paul's second letter to Timothy today. But before we dig into that, would you, can, can we just pray one more time really quick and just ask for some illumination and guidance in this text? Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would be our guide, that you would illuminate your text to us, that you would speak the truth of your gospel to us, that we would not trip up on meaningless quarrels and and stupid divisions, but that we would see your your life and your challenge and your truth and your encouragement for us today. God, may the words of our mouths, may, may the thoughts in our heads, may these be pleasing to you this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So, let me put the story in context before we get into the teaching. If you recall... Uh, we, we've just kind of moved out of the last big scene in Mark. So we, we walked through Jesus's de- declaration, his public uh, kind of confession that he was the Messiah. And then he marched from Galilee down south to Jerusalem. We saw the triumphal entry. And the last scene we've been working through for a while is Jesus in the temple proclaiming his judgment upon the temple worship, right? So Jesus has been, uh, he's in Jerusalem for Passover, his final time there, and he's been in the temple going back and forth in debates and discussions and arguments with the religious leaders in the temple. So far, he's been confronted by or confronted the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and now he's left, right? So we spent this time seeing Jesus just get into it with the religious leaders of Israel, and now he leaves. And, and I don't want you to miss the weightiness of the symbolism of this, this scene, because essentially what you have is the God of the universe visiting the temple constructed for his own worship and finding it lacking, and then leaving. 
That's the scene is that Jesus has entered into his own temple, confronted the religious leaders who conduct the worship of him, and said, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. This is worthless. And he leaves. And this is, in fact, the last time Jesus leaves the temple. And, and, and we've talked about this a couple different times, but if you remember Mark in the context of this book written to the persecuted and hurting church, written to be read aloud, imagine the scene of if you were hearing this, scene by scene of this triumphal entry. God, Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He enters Jerusalem. Everyone's worshiping. He walks into the temple, argues with the people who administrate his own worship, and then says, I'm done with this, and he leaves. And that's the scene. Jesus exits the temple and he exits Jerusalem and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives. And this teaching takes place there. Now we have a picture really quick of a map of Jerusalem. There it is. I'm sorry if this sort of thing bores you. (laughs) But it's important to note, right? So you see that big thing kind of up in the middle. You guys can all just read that, right? That's easy for you. I see a J in there somewhere. Uh, The big construct in in kind of the middle and the back, that's the temple construct. It is the dominating feature of Jerusalem in this day. Jesus has been there, and now he's left, and he's gone outside the city, and he's gone up on the Mount of Olives, and you can't see it, but it's that region outside the city, kind of the top right of the screen. And essentially, the way it works geographically is the temple sits on the highest spot in the city. And if you leave the city, you immediately drop down into a valley and the Mount of Olives raises you back up. So we have another picture. This is the view from the Mount of Olives. You can easily see the Temple Mount. They sit, uh, the the Mount of Olives is actually slightly higher than the Temple Mount. And so when you walk up onto the Mount of Olives, you, you would have a clear and precise view of the temple. And so Jesus has pronounced this kind of brutal judgment on the temple, and they leave, and they're walking away, and they're going to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples say, man, isn't that temple amazing, Jesus? Which kind of just makes you go, were you guys listening to him? (laughs) I don't think you had a great experience in there. And you're walking out going, but the architecture, right? It's it's gorgeous. (laughs) They, They come out, and they say, man, Man, this temple is amazing. And by the way, they would have said that because the temple was amazing. We're talking about Herod's temple, so King Herod, and we're going to talk about him for just a minute. I don't want to get too far into the weeds of this historical piece, but I think this is important. We've talked about Herod a lot in our study of Mark because he's actually a really important figure in the life of Jesus. Herod was uh, the, the king of Palestine. Really, he was a Roman governor, but he's really important because especially in Mark's presentation of the gospel, where he's speaking to Roman Christians, right? This comparison between the reign of King Herod, the, the Roman governor, and the reign of King Jesus, the Messiah, is actually important to Mark's kind of telling of the story. So the thing you need to know about Herod is that he's brutal. He was a brutal ruler. He was paranoid. He killed tons of people, killed like most of his family. But, but, he actually did a ton for Israel as a people. Now, I know you guys, it's hard to imagine a concept where a political leader might have 
poor personal morals, but do things that you believe are beneficial for the country. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around that concept, but stick with me. That's King Herod. (laughs) Gonna get an email about that, I'm sure. (laughs) King Herod was an evil dude, but he, he saw the Roman Empire and said, this is the future. If Israel is going to succeed, we have to be good Romans. And the weird thing is, Herod was wildly successful. Palestine became a really important and vital part of the Roman Empire for a long time. He built up and made Jerusalem a modern city. He brought in things like aqueducts and international trade. He built large port cities for Palestine. He made Israel important in the eyes of Rome. And kind of one of his capstone projects was rebuilding the temple. You guys remember, uh, so, so God's house in the Old Testament has had a couple different iterations. There was the tent version, the tabernacle that was constructed in the desert under the leadership of Moses. And then between King David and King Solomon, they built an actual temple. And if you go and read about Solomon's temple, right, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, this beautiful building that was destroyed and burned to the ground by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., And then near the end of that century, some Jewish folk came back and rebuilt the temple. So you have the second temple that was built under the the leadership of Zerubbabel and the priest Ezra. And what's interesting about Ezra's temple is that it was really terrible. Uh, In fact, you can read about this in the book of Ezra. When they dedicated Ezra's temple, there were still some old people alive who'd been alive when Solomon's temple was still standing. And, And while the young people who are seeing this house to worship God that represents their faith and their heritage are celebrating, all the old people start moaning and mourning and crying. And the scripture actually says that their mourning was just as loud as the celebration of the young people because they looked at the new one and they were like, this... It's kind of terrible. And I just looked at this young generation like, ugh, millennials can't build a temple. Anyway, um, man, I'm just like hot takes today, huh? Uh, So that temple sits around for a long time. And when King Herod is building up Jerusalem, he looks at the shabby temple and he says, hey, let's rebuild this. But let's not just rebuild this. Let's make the best temple on earth. And so uh, he makes a temple that is massively bigger than Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Herod's temple is insane. It's insane. He actually has to make the temple mount bigger to hold it. They bring in these massive stones to build a retaining wall to make the temple mount larger so they can build his super huge temple on it. The the stones they use, these are really well recorded in a couple historical sources because Herod's temple was was so ridiculous. Uh, The stones that were used in the retaining wall that, that, that the temple sat on to build up the temple mount are so big, we don't have machines today that could move them. Literally. Like, we sit back and we go... We have no idea how they moved those things there. <laughs> no clue. We couldn't do it today. Which is weird to think about on, on, a, on a different note. But Herod's temple is insane in its grandeur. It is, it is the dominant feature of the city of Jerusalem. From miles away as you approach the city, you can see this temple. And when you are in the city, this temple says, you are in Jerusalem and Herod's pretty awesome. So they leave the temple, and his disciples are enamored 
by the grandeur of this thing. And they say, man, Jesus. I mean, like, I know, I know you were laying into those guys. But wasn't that cool to be in there? Wasn't it so cool to see? Does I mean, like, that's, that's the representation of our people to the world, you know? And Jesus, being Jesus, is smart enough that he sees Herod's temple for what it is. Herod's temple. Right? See, Jesus has enough clarity to know that this structure has nothing to do with the worship of the one true God. That this structure is an edifice to the glory of man and the glory of Rome and the consolidation of power and money. And so he looks at the temple and they're, and they're, how impressed they are and he just goes, that thing impresses you? That? That building? That thing's going to be gone. That thing is worthless. There's not one stone on top of another that will, it's, it's, it's worthless. And by the way, Jesus' prediction was so precisely accurate that, that a lot of modern secular scholars look at this and go, well, this must have been written after the temple was destroyed because Jesus couldn't have predicted its destruction that accurately. Because what happened is in the middle 60s, there was a Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, and the general Titus brought the full Roman army to siege Jerusalem, and they destroyed the entire city to dust. They actually stayed there for months, dismantling the temple piece by piece and stone by stone, just as like flipping the bird to the Jewish people. They dismantled it stone by stone and then built uh, a Roman pagan altar over the top of the crumbles and then left the city there, utterly destroyed in the year 70. So Jesus looks at the disciples, his followers, and just says, if that's where you get your identity, it's not going to go well for you. And by the way, this is not the point of our text today, but I feel like some of us in the room this morning need to hear this. It was easy for the Jewish people to find their identity in Herod's temple. Because here was this person who was powerful by worldly standards, who was one of them. And he spent all this money and built this edifice to say, see, the Jewish people matter. And it was easy for these impoverished, oppressed, hurting fishermen to go, man, look at that temple. And Jesus goes, that's worthless. If, if, that, if that is your value and your identity, then the year 71 is going to be really hard for you. Which, by the way, it was. These groups that Jesus confronted who were so caught up in the running of the temple and the temple worship, the Sadducees, the, the, the scribes, those groups, they pretty much ceased to exist after the temple was destroyed. Because it was their identity. It was their person. It was all of them. And it was just stones built by a guy who was really evil. And building a cool building doesn't change the fact that he was King Herod. Right? Dang, that's too far of a bunny trail. We got to keep going. So he, he gives this response 
And he basically says that doesn't matter. And they make their way to the Mount of Olives and they're, they're sitting in this spot where they can just see the temple. And, and four of Jesus' followers come to him kind of on their own and they say, man, Jesus, tell us when this is going down because that's crazy. I can't imagine that. And Jesus gives this kind of apocalyptic foretelling, this kind of end times prophecy. And I, I want to I zone us in really quick here because it's really, really easy to get lost in the weeds of a passage like this, especially Mark 13, because Mark 13 is probably one of the weirdest of Jesus' end time prophecies. And the reason is this, we're missing this cultural piece here. Because this whole thing was sparked by Jesus predicting that Herod's temple would be destroyed, right? And his followers come to him and they say, man, that's crazy. When will the world end? Which is kind of a weird jump, right? For, for these people, the, the Jewish national identity is so wrapped up in the temple worship and the, temp, the temple construct that the idea of the temple being utterly destroyed like that can be nothing else than like a piece of the apocalypse and the end of days. And so Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed, and they go, that's crazy, when's the world going to end? And for them, that's not a weird jump, but we have to recognize that jump because Jesus is going to do this weird thing over the course of this chapter where he's going to speak dually into this very imminent future of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and essentially Jewish identity as it existed in the first century. But he's also speaking about the end of days and his ultimate return and his triumph and figuring out kind of how Jesus interweaves these two narratives can be a little complicated. It can be a little complicated because Jesus sees them as interconnected and he sees uh, the, the destruction of the temple worship and the Jewish identity in the first century as kind of this forerunner to the actual end of days. And so he interweaves the narratives and it's just a little confusing. And so if you're the sort of person who geeks out on this and you want to dig a little deeper into my hermeneutic of how we're digging through this, we can do that offline and get a coffee and I can talk to you about it. But I'm not going to stay there super long here. But, but let, let, me just, let me just give us that as a structure that, that Jesus is kind of moving back and forth between two events here. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the actual end of days, and his return is triumph. He's kind of flowing in and out of those. And really quickly, I'm going to say this before we keep going, because we're going to be in this kind of teaching for three weeks. If you are the sort of person who, who really, really geeks about, about this end time stuff, and you want to read a ton into this, I'm just going to, like in love, I'm just going to tell you this right. Stop. Do not do that. There is no fruit to be found in that. If, if you have like a section of your library at home that is end time predictions and talks about blood moons and weird sacrifices with like red heifers and how things work out with governments in the Middle East, I'm, I'm, I love you. Throw those books away. Don't donate them because no one else needs to read them. <laughs> Throw them away and stop worrying about it. Not because that stuff's not interesting, but because it's fruitless, it's fruitless. And I'm just going to tell you this again, because I love you. That's a waste of your stinking time. It's a waste of the church's time. We spent all last week talking about 
how we only get this life to participate in the beautiful mission of God, that it's a privilege, and that we get to love and serve a lost and dying and hurting world. You don't have time. You don't have time to speculate on end times theology that Jesus literally says later in this chapter, you won't get right. So please, like I'm, that's, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to bring that up again, but just pl- if you know if that's you. You know if that's you. Just, just get rid of those. Just do it. It's, we, no judgment. But I'm telling you, this is your last no judgment warning for that. Next time, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, uh, he, here's what I want to get, and, we're, and this is going to bring us around on this, on this text. So Jesus walks through, he walks through in this section that we read today, this prediction of this coming trial and suffering, right? And I think this is really important because here's what you have. Follow the progression of our story. Jesus has judged the temple and found it lacking. And he leaves and his disciples say, but wasn't it a really cool building? And Jesus says, that's stupid. That building won't exist. Don't worry about that building. And then some of his followers come up to him and they go, yeah, so, so how, like, when's that all going down? When is the world going to end? When, like, we, yeah, when the temple gets destroyed, like, how's that going to work? And what Jesus, like, what they're asking for here is they're asking for insider knowledge, right? They want to know the signs. They want to, they want to know what's up before it gets there. And what you see in Jesus's response through this whole chapter is that he basically says, that's the wrong question. You don't need to know the signs. And in fact, Jesus is really, really vague about the signs and the specifics because Jesus isn't primarily concerned with imparting knowledge to his followers here. His primary concern is pastoral. Do you see this? Because he immediately goes, don't don't worry about that. Worry about this. It's going to be really hard. And you're going to suffer a lot. Look Look at the key words that Jesus grabs a hold of here. See that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. Do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. And then look how, look how he ends this passage. Beloved, Jesus is so pastoral here that rather than, rather than letting his disciples in on the know so they can be like insiders and smarter, he instead gives a calling for the patient endurance of his church. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, Jesus is looking at his followers here and saying, you're asking the wrong question. It doesn't matter what the signs are. What matters is that the powers of this world are going to be defeated and death is going to be defeated and the curse is going to die and its death throes will be violent. And you will experience that violence. I'm leaving you here to experience that violence. So endure. Stay alert. Don't worry. Stand strong. Endure to the end. By the way, that phrase, just so you know, is not make it to the other side of the trial. 
that phrase, endure to the end, is stand strong till you die. Jesus is saying the death throes will be violent. Endure it unto death. You will be saved. Endure it. You will be saved. Beloved, Jesus is teaching here is that the, the time after the cross and before the crown will be violent. That the curse will not die easily and joyfully. It will not gladly lay down its authority over God's creation, but it will fight and sputter and kick and bite till the last moment. But Jesus says, your victory is assured, so endure. Endure. I got to hear a theologian speak this week. He's a a local guy in St. Louis who spent time in the mission field underground in China uh, in the 80s and 90s. And he has, he's, work, he's in St. Louis right now working on his, finishing his, his second PhD or something insane like that. I don't know. But he said this. He said, the promise of the gospel is cross now and crown later. And you do not get to change that formula. Beloved, this, this is what Jesus is warning his followers of in in this posture of pastoral care is if you pursue me and you follow after this kingdom, if you say, I will find my identity in Christ and nothing else, and I will pursue this thing called the kingdom of God, you will be inviting yourself into the violent death throes of the authority of the curse. And it will be violent and painful. Look at the images he describes there. False teachers coming maliciously to to lead believers astray and governments and authorities removing freedoms and imparting injustices upon believers and fellow Christians giving up their brothers and sisters and betraying them to persecution and family members, parents and spouses and children betraying each other to the throes of persecution. This is, the, this is the warning Jesus gives of the end times. And when I say the end times, I mean the time between the, the cross killing death and the return of Christ that, that officiates and ends that struggle. It's a time of violence. And that's weird for us, right? That, that feels foreign to us because we live in the most religiously and socially free society in human history, right? We experience religious freedoms in a way that basically no other Christians on earth right now or throughout church history have ever experienced. And so we hear this teaching from Jesus, and it, if you're honest, right, on some level it feels other. Like we know what it means 
to suffer and to have trials and hardships and, and to work through injustice in our own lives. But the stuff Jesus is actually literally describing is really foreign to pretty much all of us, right? And yet, if you read the history of the church, it is not foreign at all. Read Acts. This happens immediately. My goodness, read about the Nero's persecution and, and Domitian, the, the other guy's persecution. It's brutal. Think about the Gospel of Mark being written to the hurt and huddled and persecuted church in Rome after they've seen Peter crucified upside down, surrounded by his wife and children, and Paul beheaded. And they hear these words of Jesus saying, endure to the end. Endure to your death. Man, that seems so separate from us. When I say things like, man, when I, when I tell people I'm a pastor, they just treat me weird, you know? <laughs> when I share the gospel with my neighbors, it just makes the conversation super awkward. And then they just, I don't know, they're weird about inviting us over after that. I want to be really careful here. Because I don't want to dismiss that stuff. I really don't. Our God is really loving and gracious. And he meets us in our trials and our hardships. He loves us in our trials and our hardships. He fights for us and with us in our trials and our hardships. But beloved, we have to acknowledge that our experience of Christian faith is unique amongst the totality of the church. It's unique. And weirdly enough, it seems to be failing. The only place on earth right now where the church is shrinking is Western Europe and North America. The place where religious freedom is greatest. Think about that for a moment. Church is exploding everywhere else you go. Everywhere else you go. Go home today and Google Pastor Wang Yi and the letter he wrote to his church before he was arrested in December. The church is exploding everywhere else. And where we are, it's shrinking and declining and moaning and getting smaller and bitter. And there's something to that. And I'm, I need to be respectful of time. I, I, I want you guys to hear this because I'm, I'm so serious when I say I'm not trying to downplay the ways that you struggle and suffer for the kingdom. Because God chose to put you in this culture, in this society at this time, and he is sovereign. And that doesn't make you a lesser Christian or a weak person because you're American. But you have to acknowledge that your experience of faith is different than your brothers and sisters. Right now, right now. Not even in church history. Right now, your brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are doing stuff that a lot of us as much as we love Jesus and we love Hillsong United and we love singing songs, we would think twice before we would do the stuff our brothers and sisters joyfully and gladly walk into. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to think about that. Because guys, Jesus told us 
The pursuit of the kingdom is cross now. It's cross now. It's pain right now. Suffering and loss. With the promise that as you endure to the end, you will be saved. And you will have eternity of life and freedom and abundance. I'm not going to go into a deep dive of how American culture is selfish and moralistic and we like to enjoy the crown now. Because you guys know that. And you don't need me to explain that to you. You know that we worship our money and our wealth and our comfort. I'm going to read this text from Hebrews. I'm going to use this to kind of bring us around here. This is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. I'd encourage you to turn there. It's a long passage. He says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's, he's talking about, by the way, the buildup of Hebrews is talking about how the, the sacrificial system of Leviticus and the tabernacle and the temple is this forerunner to the work of Jesus. And so he's, he's pulling on that imagery to say that Jesus is our sacrifice, our high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching near. What he's saying here is because Christ is such a good, loving God, a perfect high priest, a complete sacrifice for us, because salvation in Christ is complete, you have confidence and assurance and joy and hope in Christ, and it should not waver. Because he's so good, you don't have to waver. You can believe every promise he's given you. Verse 20. Six, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outright outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He says, on just the same level that your assurance in Christ is complete and unending, your rejection of Christ should be terrifying. And listen to this, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes 
being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which was such a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Beloved, I want you to hear this cross now crown later your faith in Christ now I want you to hear this should hurt should hurt should leave skin in the game should cost you and I'm not I'm not saying some weird thing like Jesus loves beating you up and you should be happy when your life's terrible. I'm not. But hear this. Christ promised you this world would hate you. That you would suffer. And the testimony of our brothers and sisters throughout church history is people joyfully enduring injustice delighting in their property being seized, their person being wounded. The testimony of our brothers and sisters is faithful, patient endurance unto death in the face of a world that is dying and trying to take everyone with it. Beloved, I want to end which is kind of this thought. When you think about your expression of faith, your commitment to Christianity, your engagement in this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom, my question is this. If you were to grab one of our brothers and sisters from throughout church history, one of the apostles say, Show them your faith. Would they recognize it? Now I want you to think about that. Would they recognize it? Would they look at your life and go, yeah, yes, yes, that's, that's a brother or sister in Christ. You know, it's weird because they're in this affluent country that gives them all this freedom, but I can tell, I can see it. ask yourself that. Does your, does your life actually look like a pursuit of Christ in the face of the death throes of the curse? Are we pursuing the same things everyone else does? Are we doing the same stuff everyone else does, but we have a weird hobby? Some people watch too much CNN. We go to church on Sundays. 
And I'm not, I promise, I'm not, I'm not trying to like beat you up with this. And we're not going to end with me beating you up. But I think you need to ask this question. Do you have any skin in the game? Does this cost you something? I want to end with this word from Paul. You know, Mark was written to the Roman church under Nero's persecution after the death of some of the apostles under Nero, including Paul. He was beheaded in Rome. When he was just a few weeks or months out from his death, he penned 2 Timothy to this young man, this guy who was pastoring in Ephesus, who he had shepherded and mentored. And, and near the end of the book, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid out for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Beloved, I want to give you this encouragement today. And this is going to be where we're going to end this out. You only have so many years to be in the work of the kingdom. Matt told us that last week, right? You only get so many years to actually pursue this thing called the mission of God, to actually go out amongst the dying world and proclaim the excellencies of Christ and the life that is the gospel. You only get so many years to do that. Some of us, if we're honest, don't have a lot of those left. Right? And on the other side of that, there's a crown of glory awaiting you. There is eternity with Christ. Eternity and healing and joy and freedom and abundance awaiting you. So why don't we just leave it all out? Why don't we spend every piece of ourselves knowing that our victory is assured. Why don't we, like Paul, limp across that finish line, beaten and broken and drained and empty, knowing that there is a crown of eternal life awaiting us? Why don't we pursue the kingdom with that kind of vigor which says there is no identity to be found in Herod's temple or the wiles of this world. The identity that is to be found is in the promise of our Christ whose promise is true. Beloved, Jesus promised you. I'm with you. You don't just suffer to suffer. He's with you. He empowers you. He meets you in it. He gives you the endurance, beloved. Put yourselves out there. And to close with a stupid sports analogy, leave it all in the field. Drain yourself to nothing. Suffer for the kingdom. Suffer loss for the kingdom. Drag yourself across that finish line.
Beloved, let us, let us be a church that joyfully, joyfully endures the trials set before us and let steadfastness have its full effect that we might endure to the end. Jesus, you are, you're so good to us. God, and if I'm honest, I just really love this world. And I hate saying that out loud, but I do. I love this world and I love the comforts and pursuits and and the things that the freedom of this culture and this society has granted me, God. And if I'm honest, I often love them significantly more than I love you and your promises. Jesus, I don't want that to be. Jesus, break my heart of that. God, move in me, move in us. Break our hardened and callous hearts that delight in this world, that want our crowns now. God, change our hearts. Strengthen us that we might endure to the end. Jesus, we love you. We trust you for these things. We pray them in your name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.